Hi, everybody, and thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on this latest installment of the Hillco Global Smarter Perspective podcast series. As return listeners know by now, I'm your host, Steve Katz. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We're really glad that you could tune in. I've been looking forward to today's discussion because we have not one, but two, yes, two guests, and they both have a great but distinct take on our topic, which today is focused on the health and beauty industry, what's been happening there over the past year or so, and what we're likely to see in the year ahead. So we have Gary Dressler, who's Senior Valuation Director from Hillco Valuation Services, and he has extensive experience across manufacturing, wholesaling, and e-commerce. And then we have Kirsten DeCheka. VP of Operations for Hilco Stream Bank, where she focuses largely on efforts pertaining to intangible assets, such as patents and intellectual property. So with that said, welcome to you both. Great to be here, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. We're really excited to have you both with us. And with health and beauty being such a broad industry, I'd like to focus our topic today in on two key categories, I guess, cosmetics and skincare would be the natural place to start. So Gary, maybe you could talk a little bit about the shift that we've seen in recent years where market share in these two categories is being captured away from the department store environment, because I think it's important to understand how that transition has really set the tone for what we're seeing now in the industry. Sure, Steve. I'm going to start out with a note of caution to the listeners. If you have a hard time understanding me, you can blame my very heavy Rhode Island accent. I drop the R's at the end of the words and sometimes add an R where they don't belong. With that uh, disclaimer, in recent years, vertical-specific players such as Sephora, Ulta Beauty, and others have captured market share away from department and other stores through a focused retail presence and a strategy focused on competitive pricing and wide selection. Additionally, the retail environments and experience they've created through execution of extensions at other large retailer locations and their compelling presence online have really shaped evolving customer expectations of what cosmetics and skincare purchase interactions should look and feel like. And a, really a case in point is Ulta Beauty at Target debuted this past August in more than 100 Target stores nationwide and online with more than 50 prestige brands. These so-called shop and shops feature specialized displays, discovery areas, and seasonal offerings located right next to Target's existing beauty sections. The experience is also being extended at Target.com and on Target's app as well. Elsewhere, and not surprisingly, beauty, health, and personal care on Amazon continues to increase and currently captures approximately one-third of all beauty bought online. Yeah, that's really interesting. I should say also, disclaimer-wise, I have three daughters, so I'm relatively father-wise you know, familiar with the cosmetics industry, especially as it pertains to Target. I've been to Target a million times, and so I happen to have seen some of those Ulta Beauty setups. And it is interesting how they place them right there next to the cosmetics section. So thanks for that, Gary. Kristen, these brick and mortars weren't the only shift, right? What else was happening in the years leading up to the pandemic alongside that change in the complexion, I guess there's a pun intended there, of the industry that's really shaped the scenario we're seeing today, which we're going to dig into in more depth in just a minute? Yeah, as early as about five or six years ago, before this pandemic, a number of DTC cosmetics brands began gaining notable traction. 
majority of these were and continue to be marketed and sold exclusively online or just online in general. And I would say that they have a focus on quality over price competitiveness and an emphasis on delivering a new type of personalized experience to the consumer. So consumer adoption began to show promise. Among these new breed of cosmetics were innovative entrepreneur-backed brands such as Kylie Cosmetics, leveraging the hundreds of millions of followers that Kylie Jenner has cultivated um, as a reality TV personality and via her online presence. Drunk Elephant is another example, which has successfully relied upon unprecedented word of mouth to generate awareness, Kyle, and loyalty. And then finally, Glossier, which innovatively opened up pop-up stores in major cities around the world on a seasonal, yet kind of unexpected basis. This approach has created buzz, anticipation, and a strong ability to attract both loyal and new followers and to interact with them in a controlled live environment without the costly investment that is normally associated with full-time brick-and-mortar locations. Yeah, so that really gives them a sort of a, a speed-to-entry factor, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. So back to you, Gary. What kind of reaction have these growing challenges from DTC drawn from the brands and manufacturers that really controlled the market up to that point? Because that really had to be somewhat of a shock to the system for them, right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, seeing the potential of these companies, some longstanding brands and manufacturers sought out and acquired promising existing direct-to-consumer businesses rather than choosing a created here approach where they attempted to you know, assess the market. It's just such a long time uh, that would accompany such a undertaking. Among the other innovative approaches pursued to gain direct-to-consumer traction, L'Oreal, as an example, has focused on its own incubator to gather and provide insights from people's interactions with personalized makeup, vices, and tailored skin care offerings. Prior to COVID, in 2019, a little stats is L'Oreal online sales grew 52% year over year and now represents more than 16% of their total sales. The company also has been the leader in implementing new technologies such as augmented and virtual reality, as well as artificial intelligence. And this is in part uh, via its acquisition of AR beauty tech startup. Modiface in 2018. This uh, engages consumers with its product uh, offerings. Others in the industry have followed suit, enabling customers to actually see how products will look on their very own faces before committing to an online purchase. Yeah, also interesting, again, as the father of three daughters, I know some of these online sites, you log in and basically before you do anything, you can kind of see what the colors will look like and the, the palette of colors available or suggested for your individual skin tone. So, I mean, it's getting pretty sophisticated. And in preparation for this discussion, Kirsten, I was looking at some of my notes and I saw you know, there's data on women's preferred destinations for getting their cosmetics that existed even before the pandemic. And I know that you and the StreamBake team were instrumental a couple of years back in helping L'Oreal and, and Gary mentioned L'Oreal to obtain a, a valuable customer database for its own DTC efforts. And I think the company, if I'm remembering it right, had been owned and held by Bontown stores. So you guys have kind of a good perspective on this transition from the department store environment into the DTC world. And I'm wondering, you know, how has the pandemic served to accelerate DTC and health and beauty? And what else are, are you guys at StreamBake seeing right now there? 
Yeah. With the department and specialty cosmetic stores closed for many months, and then of course inhibited by kind of mask and capacity restrictions, I'd say that COVID-19 definitely accelerated the movement of disruptive innovation in this space. With people, mostly women, unable to visit kind of the stores where they would typically explore new products, we saw them engage more with the subscription-based curated brands like Etsy's Glam Bag and Birchbox, which are tailored to user preferences and sent directly to their homes. So options like these have proven really popular during the pandemic, which gives us a glimpse into a new mindset among many consumers about the type of relationship that they want to have with the products they buy and the companies that create them. So I would say that the stickiness of these subscriptions is also delivering the potential for a much greater lifetime customer value and predictable revenue for these companies. So in terms of other observations, while we typically see a lipstick effect during recessionary periods with cosmetics doing well, because even though disposable income drops, cosmetics and skincare remain relatively affordable. This hasn't been the case during the pandemic. So particularly during the lockdown months of 2020, more people were staying and working at home and wearing masks while out. Makeup sales definitely suffered overall. So they were definitely negatively impacted. On the other hand, skincare sales have accelerated due to both the impact to skin of wearing masks across the face and at least initially of all of our kind of heavy use of hand sanitizers and soaps. So to some degree, People want to pamper their skin, and it's helping people feel better about themselves during this kind of time frame that psychologists have described as really troubling for consumers of all ages and income levels, ethnicities, and geographies. I'm looking right now at some more data. And for this discussion, I just prepared a lot of notes. And I see global sales of $483 billion in 2020 uh, for the beauty industry and an annual growth rate of 4.75% with total revenue expected to exceed $716 billion by 2025. And it looks like 23% of that right now is driven by skincare and over 14% by cosmetics, the two categories we're talking about. So my question to you, Gary, is what factors and strategies are going to drive that kind of growth across these two categories moving ahead? Sure. One thing the pandemic hasn't altered has been the mounting pre-COVID trend of beauty care customers being more and more focused on the quality, suitability, and effectiveness of the products they select and the ingredients they apply to a particular skin type. Many online and offline retailers have been shifting to and gain traction by communicating these and other so-called clean beauty attributes of their offerings. They use this as a differentiator rather than competing just on price. A stat is with the global market for natural cosmetics projected to reach $54.5 billion by 2027, the growing impact of clean, natural, and organic cosmetics on the market is very clear. eMarketer reported that something like 64% of those who buy beauty care products and value quality the most are more likely to shop directly from a cosmetic brand's online site rather than big box retailers like Target or Walmart. These tend to be attract shoppers more based on price. Establishing this perceived difference in quality as a brand differentiator can really make or break the e-commerce beauty brand. For sure. And Kirsten, you know, marketing 
these kinds of products right now seems like it's more multifaceted as an endeavor than ever before, right? Buyers want brands that are aligned with the things that they're focused on or that are important to them, like social responsibility and diversity. And they're swayed more than ever by influencers. So that might be kind of a good idea to talk a little bit about the influencer environment and really what's driving sales for for these you know millennials and, and Gen Z age buyers. Yes, definitely. So we're really seeing a shifting dialogue taking place right now. Along with the increased interest in beauty products that boast quality non-toxic ingredients, consumers, particularly those in the millennial and Gen Z age ranges, are focused on the social responsibility initiatives that their preferred brands support. And I would say kind of in keeping with that, they are their preferred brands because they support those. There's kind of a, a cycle there. So for them, makeup containing Organic sun protection ingredients, for example, may not be enough to get them to buy the brand unless there's also a strong commitment from the brand to skin cancer prevention, education, treatment, other causes consistent with the consumer's personal beliefs about what that brand really should be doing on a larger scale. So clearly communicating all of the other things that a brand is invested in supporting in the labeling, via marketing, both directly to buyers and those who influence them is very, very critical at this point. So in terms of the focus on influencers, for starters, say compared to others, beauty product consumers are way ahead of the pack in terms of finding out about new brands or products via social media, blogger posts, celebrity endorsements, and recommendations. So in fact, almost one in two of them say that they're motivated to purchase products online based on reviews from other consumers. And you can see this when you shop online on e-com where cosmetics products are offered. There are really, really strong reviews. And there's a lot of kind of support behind that because people understand that it plays such a big role in decision making. Most importantly, the trend of more brands servicing diversity and focusing in on the needs of end users of color has also continued through the COVID period. So special skincare shades tailored to these audiences have been really well received and definitely remain in high demand, particularly via DTC channels. So Fenty Beauty by Rihanna with its Beauty for All positioning is probably the most well-known of these. And that line offers something like 40 distinct shades and generating social media messaging that resonates heavily with its target audience around that offering. So our team at Hilco Stream Bank is really active in this space as well. A little while ago, we were retained to market and sell the intellectual property assets of the Fashion Fair beauty brand, which at one time was the largest Black-owned beauty company in the world. And diversity being very top of mind and relevant in the industry right now is definitely aligning with what we're seeing with other brands such as Mented Cosmetics and Pat McGrath Labs, which are building solid momentum as well. Yeah, there has to be something there for sure, because I know I I recently read that Rihanna has become one of the wealthiest women in the world, wealthiest people in the world, really, based not on the sale of her music, but on the sale of cosmetics in the Fenty brand. So obviously, there's a huge amount of traction there. It's a pretty amazing transition when you think about it, really. So obviously, we only have a limited amount of time and we're getting kind of tight here. Gary, to kind of take us into the end of the discussion today, could you touch on what you and the team at Hilco uh, view as key considerations right now for those across the industry and for lenders with businesses in cosmetics and beauty industry overall within the portfolios? Absolutely, Steve. While we see the beauty and personal care industry remaining strong globally, we expect cosmetic and skincare verticals specifically to experience some of the greatest growth in the U.S. in 2022. 
There haven't been any notable acquisitions by large companies in this space during the pandemic period, but we have seen established buyers buying early stage niche startup companies, and Revlon has been marketing some of its lower performing brands. This isn't really surprising as most would-be buyers want to wait out the unpredictability and focus on driving their own robust DTC digital and omni-channel efforts right now. Like so many different industries, higher logistics costs and wages due to worker shortages are continuing to have a big impact on industry businesses along the supply chain. For now, we advise lenders to continue monitoring the impact from the pandemic on companies and their portfolios, particularly given the new concerns about the Omicron variant and the impact on foot traffic at brick and mortar stores and how this may oppose challenges in next year. A robust digital infrastructure will be imperative for beauty care retailers moving ahead and lenders should remain very well informed on the state of those capabilities among their portfolio businesses. I know I speak for Kirsten as well when I say that lenders should also be aware of any terms and renewal requirements pertaining to ownership, control, and use of that IP, and how those would likely impact a net oily liquidation value in a liquidation. Like so many other industries right now, there's definitely significant pressure on cosmetics and skincare margins, and lenders should keep an eye on performance, as any decline in margin is likely to mean a lower recovery in the event of a liquidation sale. Additionally, Hilco recommends lenders monitor discontinued and slow-moving products really closely to ensure the company remains proactive in selling through these inventories and proper reserves are in place. Okay, terrific observation. And Kirsten, from your side, any last thoughts on that? Yeah, we didn't really discuss um, perfume or fragrance markets, but since we did talk about the power of celebrity brands a little bit, I wanted to note that many fragrance manufacturers and wholesalers have established license agreements for celebrity fragrances. And these brands often perform really well when celebrities are hot, but when sales for these brands do slow, it tends to happen quite quickly. So we recommend that lenders monitor all new fragrance launches and the existing products with strong celebrity links to ensure really that they're meeting planned sales. So to Gary's point, Licensing agreements associated with these relationships normally include certain restrictive terms, such as channels of distribution, royalty fees, and minimum annual royalty payment amounts. So we recommend that lenders and legal counsels should have a really good handle on these and confirm that assumptions considered in projected NOLVs really are reasonable in the current market. All right. Well, terrific perspective, guys. Thanks so much. For those of you listening in, whether you're simply seeking some added perspective or are at a point where you're looking for guidance or assistance with a current matter involving strategic disposition, acquisition, or maintenance of either tangible or intangible assets anywhere across the beauty industry. Uh, You've just heard from the people that you want to call. So Kirsten, how can people get in touch with you? Sure. Email is best. So kdicheca, that's K-D-I-C-E-C-C-A at hilcoglobal.com. And Gary? Best contact info for you? Yeah, for me, either email or phone. Email is gdressler, and that's G-D-R-E-S-S-L-E-R at hillcoglobal.com or 401-225-5901. All right, great. Thanks again to you both for joining us today. I really appreciate it.
It was great to be here. My pleasure. I hope it was informative for the listeners. Well, I can confidently say that it was, Gary. And no problems with uh, dialect from the East Coast, I promise you. Uh, and listeners, we hope that today's Hillco Global Smarter Perspective podcast provided you with at least one key takeaway that you can put to good use in your business or share with a colleague or client to help make them that much more successful moving forward. Until next time, for Hilco Global, I'm Steve Katz. Bye.